from Hammer Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Michael Belfiore will join us to discuss the Department of Mad Scientists. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. to the Grok's Science Show. Well, the remarkable innovations occurring in science and technology continue to change and remake our world. Although most of us have heard of the famous labs like Bell Labs and MIT's Media Lab, few may appreciate the remarkable advances that have come out of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, also known as DARPA. Well, joins today to discuss the remarkable history and projects at DARPA is Michael Belfiore. Mr. Belfiore is the renowned author whose works focus on breakthrough technologies and have appeared in New Scientist, Air and Space Smithsonian, Popular Scientist, and others. Author of the previously highly acclaimed book, Rocketeers, his new release, The Department of Mad Scientist, How DARPA is Remaking Our World from the Internet to Artificial Limbs, explores this topic for a general audience. Mr. Belfiore, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on the program, and your previous book, Rocketeers, talked quite a bit about what was going on in privatized airspace. How did you become interested in DARPA? I got interested in DARPA through Rocketeers that I was following for my first book about private space travel. These are both building their own rides to space without government help, for the most part. But then I found that some of them were actually getting money from DARPA, which I had never heard of at that time. The more I found these people who were getting DARPA money, the more I thought, who is this DARPA? And... Why is the government agency funding these rocketeers that at the time NASA didn't want anything to do with? And what I found was a very interesting story about DARPA as America's first space program founded before NASA the same year, but earlier on in the year for the same reason, to defeat the Soviets in space. How is it that most people have not heard of this agency? It's because they prefer to fly under the radar, but quite literally, actually. They developed stealth aircraft technology in the 1970s and the 80s and then in through the 90s. They like to do things quietly. About half of their programs, I'm told, are top secret. So I was only allowed to see, while I was writing this book, the Department of Mad Science, I was only allowed to see about half of what they were doing. At the same time, they do have very large footprint in our society, so it's sort of hard to ignore them. For instance, 40 years ago, actually 40 years ago this week, DARPA launched what became the Internet. That's incredible. And without DARPA, the Internet would not exist? That's absolutely right. It started as a DARPA program. At the time, it was called ARPA. It didn't have the D for defense. It stands for Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Back then, it was just the Advanced Research Projects Agency, but it was the same agency then as now, part of the U.S. Department of Defense. And specifically, one program manager or director, actually, of an office, the um, Information Processing Techniques Office at ARPA, a guy named Bob Taylor, was sitting in his office one day and, and just thinking about the fact that he had five computer terminals, each one of them connected to a different mainframe computer at a different institution. And he thought, well, this is ridiculous. Why do I have to log into a separate terminal? Every time I want to use a different computer, I should have one terminal that lets me connect to any computer 
on a network. So he went down the hall to his boss, the uh, head of DARPA, or ARPA at the time, and pitched this idea. And right then and there, the guy said, okay, here's a million bucks, go for it. So in 1969, researchers at UCLA, funded by ARPA, connected their computer to a computer at Stanford, and the internet was born as ARPANET. Pretty typical of how DARPA works. It still operates this way today. It's a kind of a freewheeling organization, just a bunch of people in an office building. They don't have any of their own labs, and these people sit around and dream up ideas. And, for instance, this guy thinking of the ARPANET. There's all kinds of people, all different backgrounds, physicists, bio biochemists, mathematicians, people like this, roboticists, who just think, well, what capability should the military have? And it's not always what you think. It's not always ray guns and, and super bombs. It's often things like, you know, how do we get computers to talk to each other better? Or how do we get cars to drive without humans behind the wheel? That's one of their projects that just wrapped up. And these things have a lot of implications for us in the civilian world as well as in the military. Uh, I'm wondering if maybe you can go into a little bit of the history of DARPA. So 1957 is when Russia launched Sputnik, and it caused a huge uproar, of course, um, especially in the military. And President Eisenhower didn't see this as big a threat as many other people did, but he knew he had to do something and do it quickly. So the obvious problem was that, well, if the Russians have something in orbit and we don't, so how do we get something up there as fast as possible? And, and then, how do we find an, an even higher ground on which to defeat them? So Eisenhower, the Eisenhower administration thought, well, let's create a space agency, and this is how not NASA came to be as well. But NASA was a big, sprawling institution. It was always conceived of as such. It was going to be a big bureaucracy with its own laboratories and lots and lots and lots of people working there. But the Eisenhower administration wanted something that would be much more nimble, something that can just rush into the breach as quickly as possible, and that became ARPA. And the idea was, let's just throw some guys in the office building, let's get them cooking up some ideas and give them some money to farm out to contractors around the country, see what we come up with. So ARPA was actually announced as the space agency. The New York Times story was a new space agency created for NASA, and they started the work that became the moon rocket. And then NASA came along later in 1958 and took over that mission. They, instead of contracting with the group in, in Huntsville, Alabama, that was that was building the moon rockets, they just bought the whole place up. They just took it over and left ARPA hanging out there for a while. It wasn't clear whether they would even have a purpose or be allowed to continue, but they moved into other fields. They're, they weren't limited just to space, so that's how they got into information technology and other things like that, and that's how they really thrived. So they're not limited to any one area of science or technology. They're just free to pursue anything that seems interesting, unlike NASA, which is stuck kind of in one mission. And after the moon landing, NASA had all the same sort of problem that ARPA did, trying to figure out where to go next. It didn't have the flexibility that ARPA did to move into other realms. They do have free reign to investigate any topic which interests them. Yeah, and they, the program managers have a lot of autonomy. These folks, are, you know, there's only, there's only two layers of management. There's the program manager who uh, has a budget, and there's a layer right above him that's the, um, the deputy director of DARPA or head of his particular office, information processing techniques or defense science office. There's five offices there. And then there's the head of DARPA himself. So 
don't have to go through a lot of paperwork, a lot of bureaucracy to get projects funded, so things can happen quickly. But you apparently had to go through a bit of uh, effort just to uh, get some access to some of the key personnel. I mean, you talk about eventually meeting the DARPA director, Tony Teller. Yeah, <laughs> well, that was a little bit uh, hair-raising for me, because I, I had a contract in hand to write a book with the understanding that I would be given access to DARPA. I'm somewhat naive, you know, I thought, oh, well, you know, they, they've got some positive indications that they would let me do that. So I say there's minimal, minimal bureaucracy within the agency, but trying to get in from the outside is an entirely different matter. So it took me about six months of concerted effort going through their public affairs office. I finally was granted an interview with the then head of DARPA, Tony Tether, and it was to be a phone interview. Uh, but I figured, well, this is my chance, really, to get in the door. I've got to do this right. So I actually drove down there from New York, where I lived, to Washington. And I showed up at his office door, and he was rather surprised to see me in person. And of course, that, even that part wasn't so simple. I was, you know, all under escort. And if you go in the door, you got to divest yourself of any kind of reporting material that isn't authorized. You know, cameras, three um, floors sealed off, combination locks, and... But uh, we sat down and I basically pitched him my book. I said, look, this could be good for you. Have a book out there. No one's ever written a book about the agency. And this is kind of their weak point. Because they don't have a lot of publicity, they have a hard time recruiting people to work there. The program managers, it's also one of their strengths, that their program managers only serve terms of four to six years. After that, they're kicked out. They, they all go around with their expiration date on their badges which is, this is both good and bad. It, it means that people don't become entrenched in the bureaucracy there, but it also means there's a continual need to fill those slots that open up all the time. So Tether saw this book, the Department of Mad Scientists, that I wanted to write as a means of getting people interested in the agency so that they might actually apply to work there. He signed off on it and right then and there, just like uh, you know Bob Taylor pitching the internet, <laughs> pitching my book, and right then and there, just, just as back in the 60s, the head of DARPA signed off on it. He said, okay, you, you have access, but do it right, he said, or you'll never be allowed back in here again. <laughs> well, I, I think you've certainly done it right, and you've certainly covered, I, I think, a remarkable breadth of the activity at, at DARPA. How did it feel actually having that kind of access? It was an amazing experience to sit down there with the head of this government agency who'd been hired directly by the uh, Secretary of Defense, and it was almost a surreal feeling. Here I was, this freelance reporter who just had an interest in this place, kind of the first in there with a book, and mostly I think because I was the first who really had a strong enough interest to, to bang down the door, I, I hope that other people will follow me. There's a lot more to be mined there. There's, I've only scratched the surface. I tried to pick a few projects the agency was working on that, that could possibly have as big an influence in the future as the internet did, and then try to spend significant time on each of those projects, rather than trying to do a, a huge survey of lots and lots of programs and projects, really tried to focus in, you know, spend uh, half a chapter or even a full chapter on, on projects, really get to know the, the people building the things, like the, the robot cars, or prosthetic limbs, or whatever it is, and, and get a real sense of what's going on out there with our, our tax money. Which of the uh, projects were you most fascinated by? So I chose autonomous vehicles. There's, um, there's a robot car race that DARPA sponsored. There's three of them. The last one ended in 07, and that's the one I attended personally. And 
the idea is that you get cars that can drive without humans. And you just climb in your car, punch in a coordinate, or, or just tell the car where you want to go, just like you would on, on a GPS. Only it's the car you're programming instead of the GPS. And then the car just takes you there. It follows traffic laws, um, avoids other vehicles, keeps you out of accidents. Like, it basically gives you time to do whatever you want to do. And I think this, this would be tremendous, but also save a lot of lives, which is what DARPA funded it to do. They want to use these vehicles in war zones for supply vehicles. So you just have supply trucks moving through a dangerous area without any people on board to be shot at or kidnapped or anything like that. But this is an interesting thing about DARPA. You know, it's a, it's a military organization. The technology that they sponsor, because they're not done in-house, they're not, they don't have their own labs, these technologies are done by outside companies and universities. And they have the right to market, go out and commercialize these technologies. As long as government has first dibs on them, then they have free reign for the most part to go out and market them. So a lot of these autonomous vehicle technologies are of, of, of great interest to automakers like GM and Volkswagen, or two of the big manufacturers out of the race in, in 07. They want to build safety features into their cars, which would amount to letting cars drive themselves eventually. That, to me, was a, a tremendous project I wanted to get more into. Another one is energy. DARP is really interested in getting us energy security, and not just as the military, but as, as a country. Let's not rely on supplies of oil or other forms of energy that are under the control of potentially hostile regimes. Let's try to produce all of our own energy at home. And as a huge side benefit to this project, major projects they're working on now along these lines that are, that are renewable. So these are things that won't pollute, they won't contribute to the greenhouse effect, and they'll be homegrown. So um, that, those are, that's another amazing, uh, tremendous application. One of the most pressing challenges for the, uh, the future, you would think. That's right. And the, the program manager there, Douglas Kirkpatrick, who I interviewed for my book, he started these, a lot of these energy programs. He's not shy about saying, look, if we can grow our own fuel or harvest it ourselves from the sun or from crops or, or what have you, from algae, we might not even have a cause for conflict in the future in certain areas of the world. So what better way to protect our troops and the military and, and do our job as this agency to help the military than to remove the need for them to go into harm's way in the first place? But, you know, these are smart people. You know, they they're, um, see what's going on. They see, well, look, you know, energy plays a huge role in conflict. And Kirkpatrick is telling me, in fact, he, he feels that energy has been the major factor in every conflict in history. There's always problem getting energy or it's a fight over energy or we've run out of energy during a conflict. Let's try to remove that factor. Let's have a bunch of troops go into some place and set up camp and just draw from the environment for all their energy needs. So they're working on solar cells that are five times more efficient than anything on the market today. They want to get solar cells that can harvest 50% of the sunlight, striking them and turn it into energy. That would be efficient enough so that people could run around with flashlights, walkie-talkies, uh, phones, or whatever radios they have out in the field, just have them be completely solar-powered. You, know, you get a good charge, uh, and then you run around to your stuff, and then at the end of a mission or whatever, you just put them out in the sun, and you're ready to go for the next time. And, of course, that would be tremendously helpful to us as well.
I, I mean, it is incredible, all the fascinating things. What is your impression of DARPA after having investigated them? And do you think more people will become aware of them as uh, word gets out about fascinating things they're doing? Well, going back to Kirkpatrick again, it was Kirkpatrick, one of the program managers who interviewed for the book. He, he said to me, as a quote in the book, that he feels that DARPA is a national treasure. And after writing this book, I tend to agree. I, I think it's done tremendously important things for very little money. Their entire annual budget is $3 billion, which is something like one half of 1% of the overall defense budget. And it's about a fifth of NASA's budget. So, and I think there's a lot of lessons there for other organizations, both in the military or in government and out. How do you use limited resources to get a lot done in a short time? And they've got a winning formula that I think bears looking at and can be emulated. Well, we are running slightly out of time. I'm just wondering if you have some uh, final words uh, on the book and on DARPA. Well, we're in a time right now that may be analogous to the beginning of the Cold War and, and also in 1957 when Sputnik was We're facing crises on, on many fronts. We've got two wars going on. We've, we've got an energy crisis. We've got a climate crisis. And back then, a lot of scientists and innovators rose to the challenge and got us through the crisis. And I think there's potential now for these same kinds of people to do that here as well. And I hope that people reading the book will see that. There are people out there working on these very important challenges we're facing, and they are in the process of solving them. I hope people will be inspired by that to actually contribute to the solutions themselves. Well, the new book is called The Department of Mad Scientists, How DARPA is Remaking Our World from the Internet to Artificial Limbs. Mr. Belfiore, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks very much for having me. And you were just listening to us from Michael Belfiore discussing the Department of Mad Scientists. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Look at what's happened to me.
right, it's time to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Dr. Frankenstein or Dr. Pepper. So for the falling five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're more like Dr. Frankenstein, possessed mad genius, or Dr. Pepper, uh, high calorie but no substance. Mr. Belfiore, ready to play the game? Okay. All right, here we go. Person number one, Dr. Frankenstein or Dr. Pepper, Microsoft former CEO Bill Gates. Dr. Pepper. <laughs> I think he's been borrowing a lot of technology from other people. I'm not sure he's so much an innovator as a borrower. Maybe in that sense he is a Dr. Frankenstein. Just patching things together. <laughs> yeah. All right. Person number two, Dr. Frankenstein or Dr. Pepper, Jerry Springer. <laughs> Jerry Springer is a, is a Dr. Pepper, for sure. Okay. Richard Branson. Richard Branson, uh, I give him a, a, a big uh, Dr. Frankenstein. Okay. Number four is Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs is definitely Dr. Frankenstein. He's, a, he's an innovator. I, I think uh, Branson is too in his own way. These guys are thinking about the future and drawing some pretty interesting conclusions. Uh, finally, number five, it's the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Ooh. You know what? Give him Dr. Frankenstein just because of who he is and the fact that who he is in, in office is a pretty amazing thing in itself. All right, Mr. Belfiore, I want to thank you very much for sticking around playing our game and, of course, talking about the book, which again is called The Department of Mad Scientists, How DARPA is Remaking Our World from the Internet to Artificial Limbs. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Thank you.